Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team Ready. Ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is, so they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready. Thank you for listening to this Billy Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go Billy Up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic Podcast, by the end of the first All-America Football Conference season in 1946, the league would learn three things. Have a good owner, have a good coach, and good talent on the field. Some teams didn't have enough of any of those things. You're behind the mic with Michael Neal Jr. All right, welcome in. Papers are ready, locked and loaded. NFL historians and lovers of sports history, welcome in. This show is for you and not for those who know it all. I understand if you already know this stuff, but I mean, move on. But I mean, you can sit down, you can listen and just nod. Yep, mm, I knew that. But this show is for those. This show is for those who don't know as much about NFL history. So we are here to do three things: enlighten, teach and learn it is the behind the mic podcast i am your host michael neal jr this show is presented by belly up sports the belly up sports podcast network and you can find not only my show but all of our shows as well as great content writers on bellyupsports.com and you can listen to these shows or watch them all on spreaker which is our home base apple podcast spotify google podcast amazon music stitcher our iheart radio and more as well as YouTube. All right, so we have been talking about the All-America Football Conference. I've been reading a very good book, uh, The League That Didn't Exist, A History of the All-America Football Conference. Uh, and it lasted from 1946 to 1949. It's written by Gary Webster. And you know, just a little bit of a review on last week's show, we just opened up as something to kind of set the table. And it was really part one of three okay so the first league that start tried to start to compare actually to compete with the national football league or the nfl as we know it the first incarnation of the afl red grange wasn't getting paid enough by the chicago bears in 1925 so the next year in 26 he starts his own american football league lasted a year uh and then the next two AFLs were in 1936 and 1940. They didn't last longer than two years. And then the last two, the fourth and fifth, were both started in 1945. And just so happened, what the USFL was one of those two. Red Grange was actually brought on to be its president and I believe like his commissioner and whatnot. And then there was the Trans America Football League. Neither signed a player or played a game. But also, go back to 1944, and we talked about the man, the myth, the legend, Arch Ward, who had already had a reputation, a great reputation as a great idea man, as well as being a very accomplished columnist for the Chicago Tribune. And 
he had started two things. One in 1933, it was the Major League All-Star game. It all started with, like we talked about last week, wanted to put a little extra fun in the World's Fair, and they decided to have a baseball game with the best players from both the American and National League, and here we go. We still play that game to get today. Now, the game we don't play anymore, it stopped in 1976, is the College Football All-Star game, or the College All-Star game which the seniors, graduating or graduated seniors uh, that were coming out played a game against the previous NFL champion. And it all happened at Soldier Field in Chicago. Great ideas came from this man. And another one was the All-America Football Conference or the AAFC. And those first five leagues did not survive because they didn't have the money, they didn't have the talent, and they definitely did not have the staying power when it came to ownership with deep pockets. They couldn't last. And those three things have to be sustained in order for a league to last. Um, you had all kinds of cities. We, we named them up in the Northeast with New York and Buffalo and Rochester, Syracuse, and then Ohio with Cleveland and Cincinnati, Columbus, in the Pennsylvania's Pittsburgh and Philly, even uh, it's St. Louis, Seattle, L.A., and Hawaii. Not all of these teams or these cities actually had teams. They didn't even play a game. Uh, but uh, later on in life, we would have a professional football team in Dallas, for example. But not yet. These were plans that some of them came to fruition. Some played games. And some of them didn't even last a season. The franchises folded before they got started good. Well, Arch Ward had some deep-pocketed owners that were behind him. In 1944 and 1945, they had two separate meetings. They had separate meetings where they said, okay, this is what we want to do, and we want to challenge the NFL. And the long-term plan of the AAFC and Arch Ward and those owners that were coming in, they wanted to have their champion play against the NFL champion. Now, the NFL at the time, at the time had 10 teams, okay? They had eventually started off with eight in 1946 by the time they kicked the, the, the first season off. But they wanted to have 10 eventually. Well, with them going back and forth with the NFL, and not really, because this book is called The League That Didn't Exist for a Reason. That's because the NFL uh, starting off with not only its owners, but also the present commissioner, Elmer Layton, one of the four horsemen of Notre Dame, the legend, the legendary Notre Dame backfield did not even want to acknowledge that the team, the teams, the league, uh, anybody that's attached to it even existed. They, he said, get a ball, play a game, and then we'll talk. But they never really wanted to talk at all. Several attempts, whether it was by letters or, or just by over the media of wanting to meet with the NFL, all of it fell on deaf ears because they did not want to share. They did not want it. They had a corner they cornered the market, uh, so to speak, on professional football. Now, outside of minor league football, which that wasn't a threat, there were three leagues I'll tell you about a little bit later. The, pro, the pros, it was all about them. They were already having to deal with the, the fact that college football was over their head, okay? And with all of these, these new leagues that tried and failed to come through, here's another, here's a sixth one. Here's another Batman movie coming to, to, to try to take our attention and it didn't work um, as far as them trying to get the attention of the NFL but they went on about their business 
And one of the things that was very, very prevalent in the early stages was the fact that they were fighting over, okay, players and coaches. Okay, so there was a rule. There was a rule that they had set and laid down because at the time, the commissioner-elect, Jim Crawley, who was a teammate of Elmer Layden, was one of those four horsemen. They had laid down that they would not, one, sign any NCAA players without uh, with eligibility remaining, and they would not select any players or go after any coaches that still were under contract. I'll just cut it straight to the chase. Eventually, the gloves came off, and that rule went out the window because of the way that the NFL and their owners were reacting. Because of this, I'll just call it the signing war when it came to players and coaches, and we'll focus more on the coaches, excuse me, on the players, because there were so many that they knew were coming out of college that were great. Some that actually were NFL players that were out of their contracts. And it's like, hey, what about playing in this new league? Now, keep in mind what I said last week, uh, and just mentioning you had players in the league that they AAFC were trying to bring over to this new league. It's like, well, look, I've seen five of these fail. If I've been paying any attention from 1925 to just 19, just right now you're asking me 1945, none of these leagues survived. Some of them didn't even play a game nor sign any players. Why? Because there was nothing, there was no connection, there was no guarantees. So the fact, that they did have around 150 players under contract as of around 1945 was big. And that's because uh, you had some guys that had faith, even some former NFL players. One of the one of which, I'll just give you a couple of these names. You don't know these guys. I'm gonna tell you right off. There's a lot of you out there, you probably never heard of these guys. I'll start off, former Detroit Lion, Frank Sinkwich. He was a Heisman Trophy winner back in 1942 out of the University of Georgia. Uh, dogs. Halfback for the, the Dogs, the Bulldogs, as well as for the Detroit Lions. He actually won NFL MVP in 1944. He was brought into the AAFC. They went after Les Horvath. Horvath and Paul Brown and the Cleveland Browns and Ohio State are all connected because Paul Brown went after a lot of Ohio State players. Whether he admits it or not, he had a middleman while he was still at Great Lakes military, uh, well, just Great Lakes Naval, uh, I think it was Naval Academy, Naval Base. I've, I've said it correctly before, but he was still in the Navy, okay? And he was coaching football there. And while he was doing his business there, even though he had signed through, signed just be signed on to be the head coach of the Cleveland team that wasn't named the Browns just yet, uh, through Mickey McBride, who was the owner, who threw so much money at him, he couldn't say no. He wanted to go back to Ohio State once his military obligations were done, but you know they couldn't match the money. Plus, I believe it was the AD, forget his name. He didn't want to have any more to do with Paul Brown anyway, but. Long story short, Brown went after a lot of Ohio players. Now, I'm not talking about roller coaster Ohio players. I'm talking about those who play for Ohio State and, and in the surrounding areas. You have a lot of Ohio State players, a lot of Notre Dame players that's going to be named, but just a couple of them. I mean, like Lou Groza, as well as Les Horvath. Groza, who ended up being a Pro Football Hall of Famer. Horvath, who won the Heisman Trophy. And I believe not only is he in the College Football Hall of Fame, was the first 
Ohio State Buckeye to win the Heisman. And this is back in 1944. And then you had like a star halfback like Eddie Prokop, who, was, who came out of Georgia Tech. Uh, Gene Fakit, another name. He was at Ohio State. But he had knee issues, even though he was one of those players that was coveted. He did sign with the AAFC. Um, like I said, when the war was over, though, September 2nd, 1945, Japan had put, you know, waved the white flag. Like I said, you had Crowley, uh, the commissioner, had said they had about 150 players that were under contract. Well, you had some other ones that had actually switched leagues. And I'm going to read you a quote from another one of my references, The Coffin Corner. And it was an article by Stan Grosshandler. Quote, the first established NFL star to sign with the AAFC was Chicago Bear tackle Lee Arto, who jumped for $15,000. And this and other signings eventually raised all salaries and ultimately cost both leagues over $5 million. That was big for then. I know it's it's peanuts now, but we're talking about in the 1940s, the middle 19, the mid 1940s. Roughly 100 former NFL players joined the AAFC. And that college all-star game that Arch Ward started, check this out. 44 of the 60 players chosen to play in that 1946 college all-star game went to the AAFC instead of the NFL. That's amazing. The men who had signed with the AAFC received all the publicity during the all-star training camp. Now, one of the players, Pat Harder, who had actually chosen the NFL, said, quote, it was as if we had two different camps, an NFL camp and an AAFC, AAFC camp. And that's big because when you have uh, a battle for players, it's the reason why the league lasted at least a little longer than most of these other ones uh, was because they had a little bit of star power. So even though it made a little bit of imbalance, uh, at some point, but well, really the whole point. <laughs> but you had all of these players that you had to have some kind of star power. You had to have somebody that the fans wanted to see, and that's what the AAFC provided. Okay, so like I said, you had some NFL players that jumped, um, and apparently you had plenty of NFL players that made that jump um, as well. But another one of those great players in NFL history started off in the AAFC. You ever heard of Elroy Crazy Legs Hirsch, the record-breaking wide receiver or end? Uh, this guy actually was, I think he was drafted by the Rams back in 1944 out of Wisconsin. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you, I'm not gonna try this coach's name. I've been trying all weekend and I don't know how to say the Wisconsin head coach's name from 1944, 45, 46. Hirsch ended up signing with the Chicago Rockets, okay? But the big thing was, the big thing was he actually was denying that he signed with them and he was trying to sign with the NFL team instead. And his head coach, uh, his first name is Harry, his last name, um, <laughs> Struderher. I think that's how you say it. Struderher. Um, S-T-U-H-L-D-R-E-H-E-R. -E -E his coach was saying, no, he did not sign. He didn't sign. Come to find out, through the owner of the Chicago Rockets, John Keeshan, you hear his name a lot today. He actually already paid the man, Hirsch, 900 bucks on his contract. There was a big court battle and really wasn't a whole lot else to say. And this was the first one of many court battles for players that would be had between the NFL and the AAFC. 
ultimately Hurst played for Chicago. All right. And another one of the big winners uh, that that uh, Chicago, the Rockets actually signed that the, a, the NFL definitely should have had was defensive tackle Bob Dove. He's an All-American uh, out of Notre Dame. So there were more that were gone after present players that decided I'll stick with the NFL. Chicago Bears players. It was a lot of even uh, you had some Hall of Famers that were going after. Clyde Bulldog Turner, quarterback Sid Lugman, they were approached by the Browns and they were offered big contracts. And I think there was even one player that was offered, he actually uh, they were going after him but he requested a ridiculous amount of money he knew they couldn't pay and he decided he was going to stay with the Bears. Cannot remember the guy's name. But Turner and Lugman obviously they stayed with the Bears. Um, Angelo Bertelli, he was a great quarterback out of Notre Dame. Um, they was He was the quarterback of the 43 National Championship team. He ended up signing with the Dons. Yet another court battle because he was like, I, I think I read that Bertelli claimed that he was duped basically into signing with the Dons. In the end, he had to play for the Dons in 1946 and 1947 or you didn't play for nobody. And he didn't want to not play. So I could totally understand that. When the Dust finally settled, the 46th season for the AAFC would finally kick off in the midst of all of these fights for players. Now, one of the things, well, there are a couple of things you want to keep in mind as far as league success is concerned. How many people are going to show up to these games? And was it quality football? You can measure the latter in a win-loss record. The former, I'll give you those numbers a little bit later. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team Team Ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is. So they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready. You know, one of the perks um, of signing with the AAFC was that they had signed the biggest commercial contract as far as air charter in history at the time. It was a $230,000 contract that the AAFC had with United Airlines. It was a 44-seat plane that had, you know, what, 35 players, and then you also had the coaches and the trainers. And you're fi- you're flying in luxury. Yeah, I mean that was that was pretty cool. So you had to do stuff like that to kind of say, hey, look, you know, if you come with us. It's almost like college football. It, it really all of the things that were going between going on between the NFL and the AAFC. It, it was kind of collegiate, fighting for players, recruiting for you know players. It wasn't we draft you and that's it. Remember there was more free agency even though the NFL had a draft. 
course, if you listen to this show long enough, you fast forward to 1960, going forward, there was a point where the AFL, as we know it, the fourth incarnation that actually lasted uh, for 10 years and was an actual threat to the NFL and was playing ball, they were drafting both play. They eventually they, they I think they had a common draft, but they were both drafting the same players, and the player had to choose which way he was going to go. It was more free agency back then. Yeah, you had to honor contracts, and people were going to get all bent out of shape if you want to break your contract and go somewhere else. I would too, but you had to do some things like this in order to um, draw. Okay, and that's that's for the players and the coaches. Uh, another thing I found that was really really interesting was their jersey numbering system i always asked myself why did Otto graham in the aafc that is wear number 60 why did mary and motley a running back wear number 76 but yeah they went away from the traditional numbers i mean you know what running backs run uh wear today they may have single digits you know these days whether they're defensive back or quarter or obviously a quarterback a defensive back or a receiver and some running backs, I running back, are they able to waste single digits? I, th- I thought they were. Maybe not. Oh, am I crazy? I'm, I'm drawing a blank. But anyway, the, the AAFC's jersey system were center, centers. A center had to wear a 20, something in the 20s. Guards in the 30s. Tackles in the 40s. Wide receivers were in the 50s. Max Speedy, a uh, very good receiver for the Browns, wore number 58. <laughs> a linebacker's number. Quarterbacks in the 60s, fullbacks in the 70s, halfbacks in the 80s and 90s. Uh, you have to also remember there was a platoon system. I even go over their, um, their, like their all pro, all AAFC teams, and they don't even bother doing a defensive team. They only listed offensive sides. And I think that had a lot to do with the platoon system with players playing both ways. But anyway, um, you know, that, just to give you another nugget on the fight that it's to me it was like bordering on ridiculous not only was the nfl did they have a problem with the all-american football conference the minor leagues did as well they wanted the aafc out of business we want them out of here get them out that we don't want them you know why because uh all right so the rams the nfl's rams had already moved to la okay but then there was the Pacific Coast League, the Pacific Coast Football League, the PCFL. And if you paid any attention during our African-American, our, our Black History Month, uh, Kenny Strode, I'm Kenny Strode, <laughs> Kenny Washington and Woody Strode, they both played in the PCFL. And they played, in, uh, it was on the West Coast, right? Well, those were the minor league teams that were there at the time, and there was no real professional football. That was as professional as you got. In 1946, when the Rams moved there, okay, that was the first professional team to actually move there. Well, the first professional team to actually play a game would be the LA Dons. So the AAFC not only put one team, but put two teams in the state of California, two professional teams. And they had a San Francisco team as well and that pretty much wiped them out they put a professional team in the exact same city oh you know that just ruined them they ruined them and they're pillaging our players the good players anyway and so uh they wanted them out as well it wasn't just the pacific coast football league pacific coast 
It was also the American League and the Dixie League. So these were the three main leagues that were named in this book I'm reading that wanted the AAFC out of business. So anyone who's here's what they want to try. They want to say, okay, they want to basically team up with the NFL. It didn't work, of course. They want to team with the NFL. And this is what they were going to do. This is how we're going to put them out of business. Anybody who signed with the AAFC, they will be banned from all pro football for five years. They want to make the AAFC an outlaw as it was described. You sign with them, then by the time you get finished, then you can't play any professional football for five years. Well, here's the problem. I mean, they tried to scare players away from that league, but why didn't it work? Either league, especially the NFL, they were going to sign some of these players. They would have a a forgiveness for them and say, you know what? We know what we said. It was a little harsh. We weren't going to put that in motion because we want to be able to sign these great players. That's the reason why they were fighting for them. That's the reason. I mean, it makes total sense. So, you know, just to give you a synopsis of what the season was like, all right, so they divided it. They forced they first the uh, the the league, the AAFC, was supposed to be divided into north and south. Well, it turned out to be a eastern and western. Now, as far as the western conference, the western division, um, the Cleveland Browns they won it going away, twelve and two record. The four teams that were in it were the Cleveland Browns. We know how great that they were. They already were super loaded. Again, Paul Brown these. Eventual Pro Football Hall of Famers, Paul Brown at coach, Otto Graham, Max Speedy, Dante Lavelli, Marion Molly, and Bill Willis. Remember, they were the two, the last two were the ones that were signed, uh, the first black uh, black players to be signed in the AAFC and among the first four to be signed to reintegrate pro football. And they were beasts, okay? 12-2 record. They, they won 12 games. They lost two at one point after starting off, I believe it was 7-0. And they lost two back-to-back games. And other than that, they ran through the rest of their schedule. The second place team was San Francisco, the 49ers. Okay, 95, they were 9-5. and five. Uh, They were led by quarterback Frankie Albert uh, out of Stanford. <laughs> the L.A. Dons, they were a respectable 7-5-2. and two. But the disappointment was the Chicago Rockets. This team had all these All-Americans. Uh, some of them I hadn't mentioned, but they had all these great players, and all they could muster was a five, six, and three record. I'll tell you a little bit more about them in a minute. Now the Eastern Division stunk. All right, outside of the New York Yankees, the New York Yankees were ten and three, and a lot of this was thanks to the owner Dan Topping. Remember, part of him saying, "Okay, y'all gonna have me moving from the NFL to the AAFC. I had to lose." all of my players in order to be able to play in Yankee Stadium because the NFL was not going to let them do it because the Maras had of the New York Giants they had the territorial rights as far as football was concerned there was not going to be any pro football played NFL wise in Yankee Stadium uh, as long as everybody if you switch over to the, the to the AAFC you could play he wasn't going to lift that topping left he had to leave his players behind Topping was in a fix. Okay, you want the big media market in New York? This is what you're going to have to do. I need some of the best players from each of one of y'all's rosters. I still can't believe that they actually let them do it. So each team, could all, all the other seven teams, they could only uh, protect three players apiece. 
The rest were up for grabs. Of course his team was really good. He selected the best players that he could from every AAFC team. And among those players that he had was a guys like Ace Parker, and he ended up with the former NFL MVP, Frank Sinkwich, and a guy by the name of Spec Sanders. All these guys were really good. That's all you need to know at this point. They were the best in the East. After that, dumpster juice. Total dumpster juice. The Brooklyn Dodgers, the football version, were 3-10-1, as were the Buffalo Bisons. They were 3-10-1. The best thing about the Dodgers was that they had the league's MVP, halfback slash quarterback Glenn Dobbs, who was another one of those great college players they were able to bring in. The Miami Seahawks, they were trash as well. Miami's first ever pro football team. Now, after this year, I'll just go ahead and say it. I probably may have said the last show, but after this year, there were no Miami Seahawks after that. I'll go ahead and spoiler alert, okay? They didn't have a new football team for 40 years. All right, yes, the Miami Dolphins. So in the AAFC Championship, the Cleveland Browns won a pretty good yet low-scoring game against the Yankees, 14-9. It was a good comeback victory. Um, one thing about that whole um, the, the the league, the way that they had to do things, the AAFC had to adjust a lot of dates when it came down to the schedule. We're going to play football. Here's the problem, as well as the playoffs, of course. They could not play on the same at the same time as the NFL. They even delayed releasing the dates that they were going as far as their schedule. They wouldn't even release it, especially in cities like Chicago, New York. I mean, some some teams had the city to themselves. San Francisco had had their team to themselves. Um, Miami had that was the only professional team I believe that was. That was or well, not, I believe. That was the only professional team uh, in Florida at the time. But you had to contend in the East with, you know, in New York. You had the New York Giants, uh, and even up the road you had the Boston Yanks. Um, but you had you had all of these these teams that had to avoid the NFL playing on the same day. Why? Because fans. You had to have fans to show up to these games. Even the championship game had to be switched around. But what they could not do is deal with playing, again, the same time as the NFL. And a lot of these days, these, these game times, they changed, including the days of the week that they played. They literally played almost every day of the week. I know I read they had Monday games, Tuesday games. I'm not sure about Thursdays, uh, Wednesdays and Thursdays, but they played Friday, Saturday, as well as Sunday. And it was just kind of put together. I mean, they did it. But they had to make some serious adjustments. They were really trying to avoid playing the same and uh, the same days at the NFL. But what really was surprising, the fact that they would play on the same day on Saturdays, the same as college football, which was even more of a problem. Now, some of these teams, they still drew no matter what. Um, you know, like I said, we'll get to those numbers later. But when uh, the Miami Seahawks, for instance, their schedule was that was very odd. They played three straight home games. Then they had a bye in the fourth week. Then they played one home game. Then they played four straight away games. And then six more home games in a row. They had a 14-game schedule. Six games in a row? That's weird. The reason was that some teams could really enjoy Florida during the coldest part of the schedule. 
you know, there towards the end. That was their logic. I guess it worked out for the, the opponents, 3-11. and 11. Um, and There also would be a lot of changes during the course of the first year in 1946. Um, yeah, a lot of changes. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Having too many or too much change, too many changes, especially in a short period of time, can stomp out the momentum on anything. I mean, can you imagine a race? And if the AAFC and the NFL were racing, the AAFC had to keep stopping to tie their shoe. They had to keep stopping for some water. Or someone kept tapping them on their back to tell them something. I don't know what, but it's too many, too many stops. You can't continue to stop or have progress um, stopped one too many times. And eventually that will kill out the momentum and everything that you're trying to accomplish. And that this was kind of, I, I guess you could say, one of the things that really in the end really killed this, the, the league out. But if you look at the first year, that was just kind of a mirror, even though they had some successes. This was kind of a mirror of what was to come because it's almost like they couldn't make their mind up on things. And some of these short term things they had to get through or get over in order for the league to survive. They did not. I guess they didn't really think about it because it did not end well after this first year for a lot of people. Um Four of the AAFC's eight head coaches wouldn't even make it halfway through the season almost. It's ridiculous. So we told you about some of these guys, uh, and I'll just name these four and some stories behind them. Sam Cordovano, who was the part owner and head coach of the Buffalo Bisons, he resigned before training camp even began. So they had to find another coach, and they did. Um, they only won three games still. Jack Meager, uh, or Mager, of the Miami Seahawks, he was fired very early in the season. I believe it was after the first four or five games where he was excused, all right? And then there's orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Mal Stevens, former player. And I think he even not only played for Yale, but he coached at Yale. Um, but he was not only a doctor, he was the head coach of the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he held some stock in the football club. He was also the team doctor as well. Stevens resigned six games into the season and his record at the time was one four and one this just ain't for me it's just not working out <laughs> oh really okay no problem and then there's the curious case of dick hanley who was the chicago rockets head coach he walks away or he was fired depending on who you believe after only two games i believe he was one in uh oh one and one at the time um, and as a matter of fact, shortly after his, I, 
I don't even want his dismissal slash him quitting. He was actually in the stands along with his assistant coaches watching some of these games from the stands even afterwards. And some say that he was on the bench. Others say he was actually in the stands. I'm not sure which one to believe, but it's interesting either way the story would go. Hanley and owner John Keishan didn't get along for multiple reasons. One of the main things that I read was that, you know, for someone who didn't know so much about football, he had a lot of suggestions, football suggestions for the football man that he hired, Hanley. And they didn't get along. Obviously, it's all, it, I mean, Jerry Jones is nothing new under the sun. You had a Jerry Jones even then in 1946 and probably even before that but we had a lot of suggestions and, and Hanley didn't like it you know it's just like please stay out it was only two games into the season I wonder what it what would have happened had Keisha not butted in and let let Hanley coach the team apparently the team had problems with Hanley anyway I don't know because that was pretty early they obviously didn't like him because at one point, I put it like this. Keishan actually decided after, after Hanley's excusal or whatever you want to call it, he appointed three players to coach the team. And that was Bob Dove and then two other players, Willie Wilkin and Ned Matthews. Now, after six games, you know, they went down the toilet. You know, they, they I mean, after six games, they went down the toilet. The, the team did. They were actually had a record at one point at 3-2-1, but it just got worse. And Keishan ended up going back to uh, his assistant coaches, which were Pat Borland and eventual NFL Hall of Famer Ernie Nevers. And of course, there was a lawsuit because Hanley, even after the AAFC had went away, was still seeking money that he was supposed to be paid because of him being dismissed so early. He signed a contract. He's supposed to got his money. I don't even know if he ever got it. But even in that, Keishan had twice had votes for the players saying, hey, okay, do y'all want me to bring Hanley back or not? The first time, it was unanimous. And the second time, it was a unanimous no, by the way. <laughs> and the second time around, there was only one player that said, yeah, bring him back. Well, that didn't, that didn't really work out. Um, and then there's the aftermath. Um... Another one of the factors in the success of a league is attendance, right? You know, people have to come to the game. How else do you get paid? You have to have the gate. I've talked to uh, I've talked to you about these first five leagues, and last week I did talk about with the, the problem with at least three of the first five leagues because the latter two never played. The gate was so small; some teams, their players didn't even get paid. They didn't. They didn't get paid. And some of them, they got paid only a percentage of what they were supposed to get. And that's because nobody was coming to the games. Some teams folded because they couldn't, they, they played a couple of games and then that was it. Or they went away for a couple of games and they come back, okay, let's play this game. Then they went away forever. So, I mean, it's, it's not exactly, it wasn't surprising, but at the same time, this is a factor in the sustaining of a league. The Cleveland Browns, they topped all of professional football, not just the AAFC. They had the highest attendance of any professional football team in America. Okay. And according to Gary Webster, Cleveland established a new professional record 
That's all pro football all time to this point. And they had, they attracted 399,962 fans to seven regular season home games. That was big. Now, going back, now, Mickey McBride, they were going to be playing in Municipal Stadium. You know, they had an 80,000 seat stadium. They topped 70,000 a couple of times. And other than that, they were like in the 50s at least every week. Now, the old Cleveland team, the the, the L.A. Rams, when they were the Cleveland Rams, they only had a 22,000-seater. They weren't selling that out at all. And their first game, which they whooped the Miami Seahawks, I think it was 44 to nothing. Uh, That crowd there actually was more than they had the entire season of home games the year before in 1945. The year the Rams won their first championship. That, that's amazing. So you have those seven seven home games, and if you add the attendance of the exhibition games plus the AAFC title game, grand total of 477,107. Now, you take that number. That's why it's top-heavy. Take that number and you compare it. Now, let's just put it like this. That was astronomical. Now, some of these numbers for the time these couple that's at the top it was impressive for a new league but here it is compare that that number to the 399,000 to New York who had 194,600 Chicago who had 193,677 San Francisco who had 185,561 and the LA Dons who had 144,315 now you're still in New York we're talking about Buffalo. They were disappointed in their attendance, which was only 117,954. Brooklyn, even worse, 97,671. And then bringing up the rear, the Miami Seahawks at 49,000 fans. 49,151. And they never cracked five digits. They never had, you know five digits of fans in any home games all season long pitiful this truly proves among other things that there's nothing new under the sun nothing nothing even though the new york yankees came really close to winning the aafc championship apparently the players didn't like their head coach ray flaherty much either so you have some dissension among the ranks in a couple of teams the Yankees, the next year, they would only lose two-star players while the rest of the team remained intact. And that was important for 1947. Um, but the, the topper for me was the fact that Miami and their owner at the time, they had the players had not been paid since mid-October. They were playing for free. Now, remember those other old leagues, they weren't getting paid, they left. And some of them, like I said, one team I read about, they got only paid 67% of the of the gate. And, you know, they went on and played, but they was like, okay, we want the rest of our money. We want that other 27%, excuse me, 23%. We, we're looking, oh boy, I can't count. 67, <laughs> we want our other 33%, please. Please give us our other 33%. But these guys played for free. And they would get whooped every week for free. They were 3-11 and 11 for free. Free 99. 
was the price of their services as fo professional football players. But Jim Crawley, you know, the commissioner, they ended up, uh, they took up an offering. <laughs> they took up a $60,000 offering for the players. And not only did they pay the players their wages, they also had to pay the debts uh, for Miami's owner, Harvey Hester. This guy, uh, and I said this last week, that this dude was the one out of the deep-pocketed owners he was at the bottom. He he had to pinch pennies because I mean he had money, but he didn't have money like those other guys. No wonder. And he ended up in some debt and ended up having to have the league. Everybody else pay his players. Yeah, that's bad. <laughs> and speaking of which, heading into 1947, there was another change made. An announcement was made by the commissioner Jim Crawley that he was going to be stepping down. And he would be taking over as not only the principal owner of the Chicago Rockets, he would also be their head coach. And he replaced John Keeshan. Keeshan, um, if you read about this book, if you look at the Chicago Rockets in their early history, that first year, Keeshan was, not only did he go and grab some of the best players, after Hanley, he had gone all over the place trying to get new coaches. He actually asked Sid Lugman. He wanted George Hallis to allow Sid Lugman to come out of his contract so he could be the head coach of his team. And the funny part is, again, if you don't remember, if you didn't hear last week's show, they weren't playing at Soldier Field yet. The Bears weren't. They were playing at Wrigley. The Soldier Field home games were played for the Chicago Rockets and the Chicago Cardinals, which was the third team and that they that was not good for them uh the cardinals were playing you know at the white Sox, the chicago white Sox home field um remember the only nfl team at the time that had their own home field was the green bay packers so yeah i mean it, it, it was keisha was trying he even tried to go after frank Leahy, who was notre dame's head coach i also said this last week the Cleveland Browns, Mickey McBride, the owner, wanted him as well. He had kids that went to Notre Dame, and the father and president said, hey, look, you know, we have a good thing going here in Notre Dame. Please don't take our coach. And he agreed, you know, to basically settle for Paul Brown, <laughs> only the greatest coach at the time of all time. And, I mean, Leahy wasn't going anywhere. Uh, Sid Lugman wasn't going anywhere, and no, nor was anyone else. Keishan just threw up his hands and the crown jewel, the supposed crown jewel of the AAFC, the Chicago Rockets, you know, it was changing ownership as well as head coaches along with, uh, you know, just everything else. You had all of these changes and it wasn't great. So he replaced John Keishan and he signed a four year, well, actually not signed a four, well, he had four years left on his commissioner's contract and had to walk away with that or walk away from that. $100,000, it was remaining on his contract as commissioner. I mean, in all, the All-American Football Conference, it seemed to have some staying power. You thought it did, but you know, too many changes, that hurts you. It really does. And next week's show, when we wrap this up, I'm we're gonna show you exactly how much and what led to its demise so yes references let's get to them again the book the book the book 
I love this book. The League That Didn't Exist, The History of the All-American Football Conference, 1946 to 1949, by Gary Webster. Also, thanks to ProFootballResearchers.org, The Coffin Corner, article by Stan Grosshandler. Ah, this has been the Behind the Mic Podcast presented by Billy of Sports, the Billy of Sports Podcast Network, and BillyofSports.com. Again, you catch my show as well as others on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube, and more. Tell all your friends, your family about this show. And yes, I will find your house if you do not. Out. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.